that even bringing a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus. And so with all of that context as he's teaching, he's going he's to uh, switch gears just slightly because if there are, are promises of rewards for, for obedience and promises of reward for, for, and recognition for these things, conversely, there's also punishment for disobedience. And that's really what this text is about. And I, I realize it falls on a family Sunday. Uh, and so uh, what a joyful thing. We talked about what kind of coloring pages we could make for this week for the kids. Um, but thankfully, our secretary has better discretion than I do um, because this is a heavy topic. And so the, the, the text takes us into this, uh, uh, the story of Jesus continuing to teach And Jesus takes some time. He's going to illustrate some very important matters to His disciples. And essentially, as He does, He reveals the heart of God and what God cares very, very much about. And we're going to look at that at the end. Three things that are very important that God is serious about. Um, But I want us to look at a few things here. As we go through the text, we're kind of going to take a a broad overview and then dive in a little bit closer each time. But um, the first thing I want us to note as we look at this is this is a text with contrasts, lots of contrasts. And essentially, uh, the contrast, and, and if you look at in some, depending on your translation, there's repetition. So he'll, he'll talk about uh, something as preferred, then he'll talk about what the preference is over. And so we're going to look at that. Um, but the first thing I want us to note is to note the preferences that Jesus says, the preferred thing, okay? So you start in verse 42. The preferred thing is, it is better to drown in a horrible death with a millstone hung over your neck. Now, if you don't know what a millstone is, I'll kind of give you a visual. So in in Israel, they would grind the wheat. They would gather the wheat and put it in a a round uh, 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 area, and it was called the mill, and they would have this giant stone, and oftentimes they'd weigh hundreds of pounds, and there'd be like a stick usually through the middle of it. So think of us big, you know, if you think of uh, the, the cartoons with the prehistoric people with the big stone wheel, you know, and, and this would have like a stick through the middle of it, and then an oxen or something would kind of go around in a circle, and the stone would roll over the, the wheat and crush it, and, and what would come out would be your flour. And so the, the idea here is that not just that, so, so whenever I would visualize this back in the day, I would think of like a chain being attached to my neck. And that no, what the picture is, is that hole, the opening in the middle would literally be where your head would go through. So Jesus says, I want you to think, the, think about this. Jesus says the preferred thing in this first contrast, it is better to drown a horrible death with this millstone put upon you than the other option. He goes on. The second contrast, the second preference. It is better to cut off your hand. The third one is, it is better to cut off your foot. And the last one he uses is better, it is preferred to rip out your eye. Can we just pause for just a moment and think about that? Let that sink in, that Jesus says it is preferred to drown a horrible death, to cut off your hand, to cut off your foot, to tear out your eye. Let that sink in. And then let's pay close attention to what the non-preferred thing is. 
I mean, I don't want it to be that there's this heavy aura this morning, but I want us to consider what Jesus is really truly saying. He's saying it's better to do these horrible things than the other option. Whenever I hear something like that, I'm like, okay, if, if these horrible things are preferred, man, I don't, know, I, I don't know what the other one is. This is what he says, the non-preference. The first one he says in verse 42, he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The non-preferred thing is to face God and judgment while guilty of leading an innocent one into sin. Over and over again in the Word, we're told about how much God cares about children. And it's not just about children in this case. It's also those who, the, the idea, the, the, the understanding is those who are innocent, those who are naive, those who are, who are, who are young and, and spiritually immature. That, you know, over and over again, the emphasis in the Word of God is that we would have childlike faith. As parents, we should carefully consider this, Right? We have children. We have children and and we ought to carefully consider the impact of our our words and our actions. As teachers, consider your work and what you are teaching children. Because Jesus says it would be better to have a millstone hung upon your neck than to to let one of them be led astray into a wrong understanding. Into a wrong understanding of who God is and what He delights in His people. As adults, because some of you may say here, well, I don't have children, this doesn't apply to me. I don't teach kids, it doesn't apply to me. Guess what? As adults, you are constantly influencing people. And it's not just children, but those who are babes in Christ. This should be a sobering thought for us. Because Jesus says it'd be better to drown a horrible death than to let somebody else be led astray. By our thoughts, words, actions, teachings that we communicate. That's the non-preference. To face God in judgment. Then the other three contrasts are all the same. And it's repetition, repetition, repetition over and over again. Jesus is saying that it would be better to, to cut off your hand, to cut off your foot, to tear out your eye. And He's very graphic in this. Than what? Than to go to hell. It'd be better to do those things than to go to hell. So these four contrasts. Verse 42 again. Leading an innocent into sin is tragic. It's serious to God. We should be careful to consider our verbal and our nonverbal actions and communications. Because God, God cares so oftentimes, more about what we do with our liberalities than we do. Well, I can do it. It's my freedom. There's a saying that I heard from a a mentor in college that I thought was so good. He said, others may, but I cannot. Why? Because it leads to sin in my life. Or it leads others to sin. These next three about hell, let me tell you something. The world doesn't want to talk about hell. 
The world doesn't want to talk about how it doesn't enjoy it. It, it doesn't want to it, it believe in it, it exists. There's a doctrine going, going around in, in the American and worldwide churches. It's called the doctrine of annihilationism, where people who are just so uncomfortable with the idea that there is a place called hell that is about eternal suffering and punishment. And let me just stand here before you and say, I am uncomfortable with that thought. It makes me very uncomfortable. But the reality is what people then do is they create this theology that says, well, a loving God could never do that, so He wouldn't create a place, as Jesus describes here, uh, uh, where there is an unquenching fire and the worm never dies. Jesus talks about it, uh, even though the world doesn't talk about it. So what they do is they create this doctrine that says at the end of time, at the, the judgment, what's going to happen is those who are non-believers are just going to be vanished. Annihilated, gone, forever, just turned to dust and there is nothing else. There is nothing. It, it, for some reason, somehow, that makes people feel a little more comfortable with not surrendering their life to Jesus. And as churches, so oftentimes we don't want to talk about it because it makes us feel uncomfortable. How can a loving God create a place of eternal punishment? There are lots of good books out there, by the way that talk about this and talk about how important it is that we keep the doctrine of hell present in our theology because it is so vital and it is so true. Twelve times in the New Testament, this idea, in fact, in the text, uh, the Greek word is Gehenna, and we'll, we'll talk about that, but twelve times in the New Testament it is mentioned, and eleven of those twelve times it's mentioned by Jesus. Here, three times... In repetition, the descriptions are. And, and some of your texts do not have the middle repetition, but it is, in my opinion, there in the original text, to the unquenchable fire where the worm never dies. Gehenna, is a, it's, it's, it's an illustration that Jesus would use that would be super uh, relatable to the people hearing it, especially those in Jerusalem, because outside of Jerusalem, there was a valley of Hinna, which the valley of Hinna was a garbage dump, essentially. They would take the, the, the refuse of the city and they would throw it in that valley, and there was constant fires to burn it. Constantly burning. And you can imagine the maggots. I know this is great for family Sunday, right? The maggots would be in there with all the garbage and the refuge. And, and it's just not a, hor a, a picturesque place that you would want to see. And, and usually the, the outcasts of the city uh, would be cast out there. And they would go through the valley of Hinnah. And, and it's just a horrible picture. And, and Jesus is saying that place is a small glimpse because those fires, they go out. Those worms, they die, but in hell, they are unquenchable fires. They never cease. The worm, it never dies. It is constantly working through the decay. It's a vivid picture that they would have recognized. No one wants to talk about it because it makes us all uncomfortable. I found it ironic that as I was typing my sermon notes, every time I'd write the word hell, uh, autocorrect wanted to change it. Even, even computer programs don't want to talk about it. No one wants to talk about it. 
And Jesus is serious about it. He repeats it three times in this text. And, and, and in it, as we look at it, Jesus gives us, so he, he says, he mentions the first one. Uh, he says, don't be leading other people into this trap and the stumbling by your thoughts, words, actions. But then he says, now in regards to yourself, I want you to catch what Jesus is prescribing. He's not prescribing self-mutilation. So when the uh, Catholic Church came to a point of, of whether or not the service and the Word of God should be translated from the Latin to the common people's language, they would oftentimes use this text and say, we can't translate it into the common people's language because they're too foolish. They will read this and we'll have blind people everywhere and we will have people with arms, uh, with limbs and, and, and hands cut off and, and feet cut off because they won't understand what, what the text is saying. But here's the reality. The prescription that Jesus is offering is so severe that we would consider and contemplate the problem. And the problem is not the members of the body. In our society, in our world, in our humanity, there is this common theme of blame shifting. It's always somebody else's fault. It's always something else's fault. The devil made me do it. My hands made me do it. My feet made me do it. My eyes made me do it. But the reality is cutting off and tearing out won't cure the problem, will it? It never will. Jesus sharing and... and, and uh, an idea that we would consider the, the uh, absolute severity of the issue and how serious it is so that we would start to contemplate a heart issue because cutting off and tearing out doesn't cause, uh, cure the problem. Blind people, brothers and sisters, blind people still lust. People without hands still commit crime. Sin happens. Getting rid of one of everything doesn't cure the problem. Just ask Blackbeard. He had a hook for a hand. He had a patch over his eye. And he had a peg leg. And he still was a murderous villain. So what Jesus is wanting us to do is to consider, to, to consider the severity of the issue. So he says, hey, if your hand causes you to sin, if you think that's the problem, then cut it off. If you think your eye is the problem, then tear it out. If you think your leg is your foot is the problem, then cut it off. But the reality is that those things will not stop you from sin because as Jesus mentions over and over in the Word of God, the problem, the condition at its root cause is the heart. Luke 6.45, Jesus says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. In Matthew 5.27-28, the, the companion text to this, Jesus in preaching the Sermon on the Mount says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery where? In his heart. Matthew 7.21 For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery. Jeremiah reminds us in chapter 17, verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So what Jesus is wanting, the reason why this is so important... 
is because eternity is at stake. And so Jesus says, listen, sin is a serious issue. And I want you to understand that my preference and your preference should be to enter into life without an eye, without a hand, without a foot, if that's really what's causing sin, because sin is so serious. But deep at the core, it's the heart. It's the heart. And so Jesus, having said all this, then jumps ship, it seems like, and He says, uh, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Wait a minute. Weren't we just talking about hell? What does salt have to do with anything? What is the solution? If hell is so bad and sin is so so evil and we are so justly deserving of all of it, what can we do? And Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt is what in the world? It's the solution, brothers and sisters. In the Old Testament, offerings were salted to aid in the burning. It was prescribed in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. It says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. For with all offerings you shall offer salt. What does salt have to do with anything? He says it. Salt is used for both preservation and purification. To salt something is to cleanse it or to purify it. You rub salt in the wound. You ever heard that? And we oftentimes hear that and we think, oh, it's about making uh, an injury worse because we're going to insult people to add insult to injury, so we're going to rub salt in the wound. No, that saying came from a, uh, uh, an antiseptic, a cleansing agent that people used to put salt. As much as it would burn, it cleans. To be salted with fire. In, in some of your translations, it probably says that, that it shall be salted with fire. To be salted with fire is this idea, the fire of purification or judgment. Everything is salted with fire. Either the Holy Spirit or hell. I mean, that's the reality in all of this, is it not? That, that our actions have consequences, that our lives have purpose and meaning, that everything we do in this life will one day face and be held accountable. And it either will be with the Holy Spirit, as Paul alludes to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he says that all of our works will be tested with fire, whether it is wood, hay, or stubble. Uh, and, and, and the chaff will be burnt away and, and everything is purified so that the refining uh, gold that is the work of the Holy Spirit is left or will be salted with the fire of hell. Jesus goes on and He says, not only should it be salted or, or salt uh, will be salted with fire, He says salt is good. There's a great verse for us, right? Salt is good. So next time you grab that salt at dinner time, you pour it on your food, and your wife says, haven't you had enough sodium for the day? You say, hey, Jesus said salt is good. And the Greek there literally means excellent. Okay, I'm just telling you. You can pay me later for that, men. 
Back in the day, Roman soldiers, they were paid with salt. It was the solarium. It's the Greek term where our word salary comes from. Solarium. It's, it's, it's where the phrase, he isn't worth his salt, comes from. It's, salt was a valuable thing because it was a preservative and it was a purifying agent. And then Jesus says, but if the salt has lost its saltiness. Now, salt doesn't really lose its saltiness. In the, it, when they would get their salt, it would have other uh, uh, minerals in it. And so sometimes the salt quality wouldn't be as good. And so the reality is, if it was of lower quality, they would just throw it out in the streets to be trampled by men. But here's what we need to take from this. Because it says salt is good. How's the salt? How the salt, but if the salt, I cannot read this morning apparently. But the salt has lost its saltiness. How will it make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is not a call to have lots of extra sodium in you. It is a call to be continually salty Christians. To be cleansed. Sanctified and purified once for all by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 9.26 hmm, I didn't copy that one, but I can locate it. Such incredible passages to remind ourselves of that we are once for all time. Hebrews 9.26, it says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And then one chapter over in verse 14, For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Why is this so important? Because brothers and sisters, hell is at stake. Eternal punishment is at stake. And we need to understand that we need to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus once for all. If you are sitting here today and that is not your story, if you are sitting here today and you say, I, I am here because somebody made me come, whether you're a child or an adult, the reality is this, that we have to be cleansed by the purifying work of the blood of Jesus Christ or we will face one day the other non-preference. Not just cleansed once for all, but there is also a daily cleansing. It's, it's a simple pattern. Remember, repent, repeat. Remember where you came from. Remember from whence you were. That you were, as Paul so oftentimes in reminding the, the church, he said, and such were some of you. You are no more that. And if you are acting like it, Repent. He has forgiven you. His work has cleansed you. And then the next day when you do it, you do it again. Repeat. Remember from where you came from and where you are. Repent and repeat. 1 John 1.9 He is faithful and just to cleanse us. If we are confessing our sins, He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's being salted. But not just the idea of being cleansed, but there is an aspect of being a light. He says salt is good if the salt has lost its saltiness. If, if you are not daily cleansing yourself, if you are not daily being an additive and preservative to a dark world, then what is your value? 
We did a hard thing yesterday. My sister was able to come and for about a month, then she returned back to Albania, and I'm watching my wife comfort my kids as their best friends are leaving for nine months. And you sit there and you think, well, why do we go through this hardship? And I actually was grateful because my kids are learning at this age that the gospel is more important than close friendships. That they are willing to make sacrifices that my, my sister and her family realizes that sacrificing the, the nearness of family is not nearly as important as proclaiming the gospel to a people who are going to hell. We are so inundated with the idolatry of comfort. And the reality is, as Christians, we have to be a light of the gospel because people are going to hell. And we don't want to talk about it because we're uncomfortable. Taking a stand and proclaiming the gospel, not afraid to talk about hell. But lukewarm, Jesus tells us what lukewarm is all about. He says it's worse than, than anything to be lukewarm to, that I will spew you out. We don't preach, brothers and sisters, understand this, please. I was thinking about this this morning. We don't preach hell to scare people into heaven. We preach hell to point people to the one person who can do something about their problem. Hell is not a tactic. It is a truth. And Jesus talks about it because He wanted His disciples to know that they are going to be going out into a world that needs to hear the truth of the Gospel, that He has come and lived and died and gone to hell so that they would not have to. So what is our application in this? I mentioned at the very beginning that this text should leave us with an understanding that God is serious about three things. Number one, God is serious about sin. He's serious about sin. I think we can so oftentimes be flipping about sin. Oh, I just did that. It's all right. God will forgive me. You're right, He will. But if we're going to go around flippantly behaving in regards to sin, the question needs to be asked, how serious are you? The Greek word that is used here uh, about being trapped or being uh, causes you to sin. So if your hand causes you to sin, the Greek word there literally is a trap. It's, it's like an animal trap. That it catches you and you can't get out. And it gets me to thinking, if you've never trapped an animal in a cage, there's something you need to understand. An animal will literally chew its foot off to escape. An animal will literally chew its foot off because an animal in its mind is thinking to itself, I would rather limp the rest of my life than be dead. And there's something about that that we ought to consider when it comes to sin. I would rather cut something out of my life that leads me to sin than to continually disappoint the one who has bled and died for me. We, we walk so close to the edge. 
Because we have liberty. We walk so close to the edge because Christ has died for me. And yet we trample and forsake and we say, you know what, it's just a, it's just a flesh wound. I think of, uh, if you want to catch a raccoon, it's pretty easy. You make a hole in something that's immovable, just big enough that they can slide their hand in and you put some shiny object inside of it. Because they will reach in and they will make a fist grabbing it. And then they can't pull their hand back out. They're so stubborn that they won't pull their hand out. And they won't let go. It could be a shiny candy wrapper that is empty. And we say, how foolish is that? And yet we look at our lives and we realize that we are clinging to some sins in our life that we won't let go of. And they are leading us down a pit of destruction. And we won't let go. And Jesus says, cut it off. And sometimes cutting it off means cutting out the good things too. There's a story of a British naval officer. If you go to London sometime, you can go to Trafalgar Square. It's an entire square because the, the British and the French used to get along so well that, um, that this entire square was a taunt to the victory that the British had over the French in a naval battle. And in that center of the square, you'll find this like huge, I think it's like 25-foot pillar. And on the top of a pillar is this man who is dressed, decked out in admiral gear. And he's got, if you look really close, he's got his shirt pinned to his his, his arm sleeve pinned to his shirt. Because in battle, in the Trafalgar Square, in the Trafalgar battle, he lost his, his arm was shot and it was becoming gangrenous. And they had to cut above where the gangrene was. Because they didn't want the gangrene to spread. And that's the reality. Whenever you hear of somebody that has cancer, they have to cut out good cells as well because they don't want it to spread. Sometimes, brothers and sisters... We have to cut out good things in order to keep us from entering into sin. And all I want us to contemplate when it comes to this is how serious are you about sin? God is. Second thing He's serious about is hell. He created it. He talks about it. He tells us the preferred choice is these very graphic things. No one wants to talk about it because it makes us so uncomfortable. But brothers and sisters, we have a responsibility. And as parents... As parents, have we communicated to children through our actions what is most important? I did something foolish the other day. Well, every day. I have one very, uh, a, I don't know what you'd call it. I'm trying to think of how to word it where I'm not going to get in trouble with my wife I have an addiction to uh, Notre Dame college football, and I love college football, and I have worked very hard to cut a lot of that out of my life so that I don't waste my entire Saturdays, and so I have, I have narrowed it down to I just watch one specific game when they're playing, and, um, but here's the problem. So earlier this year, I saw that um, there was this special sale for two tickets 
to a football game, and I was so excited because they it was like half the face value, and so I snatched them up as fast as I could. I told my wife about it, and she promptly said, you do realize that there is Meredith's first Bible quiz off that day. So if anybody has a desire to go to a Notre Dame football game, I have two tickets for sale. You know why? Because I'm never going to tell my children that sports are more important than the Word of God. And I'm going to be adamant about that. We have so enculturated our churches even with sports and with things that do not last. And I can tell you families that have travel sports things seven days a week, and what are they communicating to their children that this is more important than being with God's people? That it's more important than God's Word? Hell is at stake, brothers and sisters. Does the weight of eternity come across in our words and our actions with people, with children? The life that we are living now is not about the journey, it is about the destination. Jesus says, what good would it do a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? If we understand the destiny, it will always impact the journey. God is serious about hell. And last but not least, God is serious about the gospel. When we read this passage and we read about how horrible it is, and I am very grateful that Jesus does not uh, soften it. I mean, he talks about tearing out things and cutting off things and, and having millstones hung around, and it makes us uncomfortable. He talks about a fire that never is, is quenched, and he talks about a worm that is constantly alive and turning in through the decay and the rottenness of what is going on. He does not paint a beautiful picture. We talk so many times with unbelievers, and they talk about partying in hell. There is no partying in hell. And God is serious about it and He is so serious that He came and He lived and He died and He went through hell so that you don't have to. And that tells me that God is serious about the Gospel. He is serious about salvation that He says in Romans chapter 8, oh, how great His love is, is this, that He didn't even spare His own Son, but He gave Him up for us. How much more will He give? We have a responsibility to carry the gospel to keep people out of hell. Speak truth because this world is winding down. It's coming to an end. The reality of the gospel is this. I got better than I deserve. That somebody went to hell on my behalf so that I wouldn't have to. And the gospel leaves only two choices. Heaven or hell. I pray that we would have the same mindset of Christ, that we'd be serious about sin, that we would consider our thoughts, our words, our actions, that we would consider our choices in life, that we would constantly remind ourselves it's better to limp than be led down the path of destruction. That we'd consider the seriousness about hell, that it is a reality whether the world wants to talk about it or not. And as a parent, we have to communicate to our children we care more about heaven and hell than fill in the blank. Work, money, whatever it might be. 
and to be serious about the gospel that there are people dying today. It's the ultimate statistic, and I know I've said this many, many times, but it's so true. Ten out of ten people, they die. One time I preached a sermon with a metronome going. It was super annoying. I forget the speed, but it's, uh, it was to represent one out of every, uh, I think it's every nine seconds, a person dies and enters into eternity. And so in an hour service, I'm not going to try and do the math because I'm terrible at it, but you can imagine hundreds of people in the time that you've sat down in this pew, these chairs died, entered into an eternity. And if they were never told the truth of God's Word, if they never put their trust and their hope and their faith in that alone, their outcome is not pretty. And they will not be partying. Now, I don't want us to leave with this heavy uh, weight of guilt upon our shoulders because I want us to also consider what we celebrate today. Because here's the beauty of all this. Jesus does say, uh, I want you to consider these things so that you, it's better to have these things done than to enter into hell. But he also says, it is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye. It is better to enter in limping to life. It is better in, to enter in with, with crippledness to enter into life. And that's the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus came and lived and died. People can ask us, you know, how are you doing today? And the answer should always be better than I deserve. Better than I deserve. Better than I deserve because Jesus came and his body was broken and his blood was poured out for me. And one day there is a judgment coming and one day people will stand before the throne of God and those who have celebrated, who have been risen with Christ to enter into a marriage feast, which that's what this is, a dress rehearsal for a feast that is coming, that the believers, that those who have put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ will get to celebrate for eternity what God has done for them and has called them into this glorious kingdom and we celebrate with a feast. And so whenever we get discouraged, whenever we think of the weight of, of burden, we turn to communion. Because we commune with the Father because of Jesus. And it can remind us, one of my, and this, my favorite verse in the Word of God, 1 John 3, 1. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. What is that love? That we should be called the children of God and so now we are. Not tomorrow. Now we are the children of God because of this. So as the elders come forth to distribute the elements, can we just take some time? Can we take some time to consider, to ask ourselves these questions? Am I serious about sin? Am I serious about sin? Have I allowed something that I have grabbed hold of that I can't let go? Before you take this, before you celebrate Christ's death and resurrection, would you do me a favor and let it go? Let it go. He's faithful and just. He forgives sin. He cleanses from all unrighteousness. Are you serious about hell? Does the thought of eternity come to your mind on a daily basis? God's Word tells us that every man is appointed once to die and after that to face the judgment. 
I would venture to guess, as the, there was a theologian who once said, blessed is the man who always keeps at present the moment of his death. Not in a morbid sense, but in the sense that death is always looming. How am I going to behave right now? Are we serious about how? Are we communicating that to our children, to our neighbors, to our coworkers? And are you serious about the gospel? If the gospel is defining who we are as a church, is it prevalent in your life? Is it, is, is, is it of utmost importance in you? Is it an understanding that every single person has a choice to make, whether it's life or death, and you can impact that? Because hopefully you've been impacted by the gospel. And I want us to pray about that as these men hand this out. And as they distribute it, uh, first thing I'd say is if you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior, would you pass the elements? This is for those who have said, Jesus is my brother, because I trust in the work that He has done on my behalf, not something I'm going to do, not something I'm doing today or tomorrow, no good works, no special prayers, no magic mantra, but Jesus Christ dying on the cross, and His righteousness is mine. So I'd encourage you to pass the elements by, but don't pass this day and leave without coming to Jesus. And then let us contemplate those things and let us pray and seek the Lord. I'm going to pray and then they're going to distribute those elements. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You that You were so serious about this that You left Your throne in heaven, a glorious place to come to this world filled with sin and wretchedness, to rub shoulders among mankind, to live a perfect and holy life, and then to be persecuted, cruelly crucified, murdered for us. And so, Father, as we partake, You declared in Your Word that when we contemplate the bread... It is your body broken for us. When we contemplate the blood, the cup, which represents your blood poured out for us, Father, we are reminded of the covenant you have sought to make with us, and we rejoice. And we thank you. We praise you in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.